Welcome to Notes from the Field, presented by Canon Press and Noeo Science. For all your homeschool science needs, be sure to check out noeoscience.com. That's N-O-E-O science.com. N-O-E-O science.com. Well, welcome to Notes from the Field here with Dr. Gordon Wilson. I'm your host, Will Boyd. And today we are talking some more big picture stuff, uh, talking about this phrase that folks probably have heard and heard a lot of attention given to the different types of revelation, revelation singular and a revelation as in revealing, God revealing himself. And so we know that Uh, Scripture is special revelation. It is special for lots of reasons. And then there's this other type of revelation out there, which is probably a bit more along the lines of what we tend to talk about in this show. We don't ignore special revelation by any means, Um, but general revelation is is our topic for today. And so maybe just to launch right into it, uh, Gordon. Yeah. Well, how are you doing today? I'm all right. I'm doing doing well. Better than I deserve? Well, that's great. Me too. Probably the key verse on, um, it's interesting because when we say it's key verse, we're talking about special revelation. So Romans one twenty. let me uh, look it up here because, you know, I didn't take, I wasn't in Awana. And, <laughs> My and son I, won I an award one year I don't want to butcher it. <laughs> Uh, it's usually uh, a mishmash of um, different translations if I try to say it from memory. But Romans one twenty, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So... This is an interesting verse because the verse itself is special revelation, but it's referring to general or natural revelation because God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been perceived. And it's saying it's, it, it's perceived by what we see around us, not, I mean, yes, God reveals himself in scripture, but he's not talking about that. He's talking about how we perceive God in the things around us. And we see his invisible attributes. General revelation, uh, everyone is exposed to that. Not everyone is exposed to special revelation. Not everyone has access to the scriptures, but they do have access to the stars above, to their own, they see their own body, how it works. They see trees, bushes, flowers animals around them and all of that is testifying to God's invisible attributes and his uh, eternal power and divine nature. And that's the important thing about natural or general revelation. So, some might say since they're both revelations from God, are they on equal footing? And some say that Science is the 60, you know, the 67th book of the Bible. And I would say, no, they're not on equal footing. So I don't know if you have anything to add there, Will. No, that's, that's a, a great place to start. 
Um, one of the things I often tell my students uh, at the beginning of the year is, that, and I think one of the huge blessings of classical Christian education resurgence here lately is bringing back or reminding a uh, new generation that, that we bring our philosophy to the table in anything we study. And so we need to understand a little bit about history and the philosophy of science mm-hmm. uh, to be able to order these things properly. Right. And a good understanding of Orthodox Christianity is that the special revelation is the lens, the gospel is the lens through which we study uh, the general revelation. Right. And it's like when we say, but everything is interpreted. Yes, but we interpret scripture in light of scripture. And we don't interpret the world around us in light of the world around us. That's what secular science does. We have to interpret, like you just said, we have to look at natural general revelation through the lens of scripture. We interpret science or the claims of science through, you know, the data, because the data doesn't speak for itself. We can gather data, but right. to interpret has the data, to be interpreted. Yeah, and when and when most of us uh, in grad school or in, or even in high school read, you read a scientific paper, and there's a long section on on data. the The methods are discussed, and then there's this data section, and lots of people's eyes glaze over. I'm guilty of that myself. You see this big uh, explanation and tables full of numbers. Uh, that's the data. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that many students do when they're learning how, and it's a good thing to do, is to, to read the beginning section, then skip to the conclusion. The conclusion is the interpretation of that data. And so it's important to remember that that conclusion has gone through the filter of someone's mind. Right. And, and, they, and that's making why some it's claims. peer reviewed. It's peer reviewed because someone would say, you know, yes, you interpreted your data that way, but. You didn't do enough experimentation. There's a number of other explanations, a number of other ways to look at the same data. So um, you're making premature conclusions from yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we have to, um, uh, just to put it in another way, we interpret science in light of scripture, not the other way around. And this is lots of different examples. Some say, well, the earth just proclaims that it is, now I believe it's young earth, but some would say the earth is just saying it's clear that it's young. Well, yes, if you're interpreting the geology, paleontology in light of scripture, you say, okay, well, this is this is what the Bible says. This is how old things are according to scripture. Um, and then we start to look at geology, paleontology, and biology in light of the clear special revelation. But if we go to the general revelation first and try to say, how old is this? Well, we may draw wrong conclusions because we are bringing to the table, if we don't have scripture, we're bringing certain assumptions to it just automatically right you go based on our experience yeah, based on our experience yep. we go oh um you know we our experience says this much sediment accumulates in river deltas per year and that's our experience so when we see hundreds of meters of rock stacked on top of each other we will draw wrong conclusions because 
we brought to the table a um, set of assumptions based on our experience rather than scripture. And that's so important on not just the age of the earth. I mean, scripture says it's young. Secular science, because they don't look at it through the lens of scripture, say it's old. Another example would be uh, miracles. You know, there's this one passage, John 12, 29. And um, I'll just go uh, quickly to John. Real paper. Yeah, real, real books paper. here. Listen to that. John 12, 28. It says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. In verse 29, it says, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Okay, so people aren't used to having big voices coming from the sky, even though it articulates a clear thought, like I have, <laughs> I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. How do you take that and make it? There's not thunder? a course, in, right? It's not a course in in uh, yeah. assessing the acoustic linguistics of a thunderstorm. And and so people are just thinking, big sound from heaven, right? Must be thunder. So they're interpreting it through their own experience and not in light of what it obviously is. You know, now so much of our kind of our presuppositional philosophy gives us really limited choices in how we interpret creation. I'm thinking of one example during ancient Greek uh, times of polytheism. They talked about uh, mushrooms being produced by, by Zeus, basically, uh, by lightning. Mm -hmm. Lightning strikes and there seems to be a, a big uh, bunch of fungus that pop out of the ground not soon afterwards. Hmm. Of course, now we know that certain times of a year when it hasn't precipitated much, you get a nice little rain shower. And that can activate that mycelium to produce a whole bunch of fruiting bodies seemingly overnight. Right. Same with uh, walking on water. You know, the, the disciples saw Jesus walking on water and they cried out. They thought it was a ghost because what was their experience? People, corporeal, flesh and blood creatures don't walk on water. Yeah, water. we don't have that superpower. And although they believed in the supernatural, they said, well, what supernatural entity can walk on water? Well, something that's ethereal, like a ghost. So they thought it was a ghost. That's a great example. So how our thought processes yeah, work. It's, yeah. uh, we're bringing to the table our presuppositions uh, and our experience and our presuppositions come from our experience. And so, um, yes, we're always having to think through it. Uh, sometimes scripture will say one thing, and it seems like the evidence, the physical evidence, seems to indicate something else. But rather than saying, huh, there seems to be a contradiction here, we don't make the scripture say something else to fit what we perceive as just fact. We have to think in terms of, okay, did I interpret scripture according to the proper uh, historical grammatical hermeneutic, right? Uh, or do I reevaluate? I'm not sweeping the data under the carpet. I'm not saying, well, I'm just going to ignore the data, but 
we're going to think through the data in a different light. Right. It's like puzzle pieces. It's like, well, you don't have to fit them together right this second. Exactly right. We might need more pieces put together on the table before the ones that you're examining. Sometimes you just get obsessed with certain pieces and you want them to go in, but they can't be fit in yet. Okay. (laughs) No, that's such a good reminder for parents too, especially when getting asked a lot of questions. You know, you can, is a great thing to say you don't know. And it's a great thing for most people in, in this type of endeavor to say, you know, I really just don't know. Here's what we, here's what we think we know this much of it, but there's a lot that we're, we're just not sure what's going on here yet. Maybe something people have been thinking about recently that occurred to me when you were talking about how that conclusion section comes together. We take the data, we analyze it, and then basically giving an overview summary of what that data means. Mm-hmm. In, in a day and age, you know, we're in a postmodern era. We know that uh, science is a tool that everyone wields for their own advantage. And l- people post studies uh, confirming their, their claims. Uh, we kind of cherry pick those. All of us do that. Would you give any suggestions or recommendations on how to think about disparate conclusions in the scientific literature? What does that tell us about God's attributes? Or what does that tell us about our, uh, about our limitations? Well, first, when I hear scientists pontificating on certain things, whether it's climate change or evolution or whatever, they're always, I can see their assumptions. And I'm not necessarily questioning the data, like they found this fossil. But when they say it's 400 million years old, I question it. Or they've already sort of drawn their conclusions. And then they're, like you said, cherry picking the data to fit it. And anytime I see a real clear agenda, I trust science about as far as I can throw their car. I mean, it's highly suspect. Because their assumptions are so strange. Now, when their conclusions are sort of clearly empirical, like bird decline, where you can go out and do surveys and, and I suppose there can be bias that, you know, rounds down and rounds up the numbers depending on what you want the data to see. It can affect, but... Uh, Generally, when they're just talking about the here and now, I can say, okay, I'm okay with the data, but I'm more suspect when I see conclusions are drawn to fit a political agenda. So, what about a a hot topic, say, maybe a layman is looking through, uh, myself included, looking looking at some of the peer-reviewed medical articles on chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine. Disparate conclusions, conclusions that don't, com- uh, that don't agree, With that's very common in science. Mm-hmm. And that's, the media doesn't really like that. The media doesn't present that well. They present science as uniform, monolithic, all that jazz. Right. Um, but uh, we know that uh, peer-reviewed journal articles come out all the time contradicting each other. Does that tell us anything about God's qualities or our, or our limitations or maybe our- both? Well, I don't know about our I would say when they come to different conclusions, they're either doing science sloppily. Well, maybe they're just dealing with different Different systems, different systems. But if they're doing the exact same experiment, they have to really, really look at all of the variables, all of the factors. Now, is their data the same? 
are their results the same and their conclusions different? Is is that what you mean? No, I. I uh, or their actual data is di- coming in different. I I'd say two two things. I was kind of lumping them together. It definitely could be an issue where um, they're doing the same methods and uh, in and if they get d- different results, very possible that someone was sloppy. They didn't yes. replicate it perfectly. Or there's some other variable in the two different labs and two different latitudes and two different climates. Yeah. You know, that other factors that they didn't, everything seems the same in the experiment. Right. But there's other variables that are affecting the outcome that they aren't, count, they're not um, factoring in. And so, um, both may be doing careful science, but they might have to go back to the drawing board and go, hey, we need to tighten up the screws here on our experimental design to make sure that, you know, why are we coming up with different results? Or is it a highly variable? Yeah. And I would say in, in a lot of fields, in biology in particular, we are, we're talking about highly variable systems. And so I right. would say that disparate results, if it's not a methodological problem, if it's not an experiment that's been done sloppily, I think that hints at the absolute shocking complexity yeah, of our Yeah, the complexity creator. of the world that, yeah. that we can't factor in everything. Can't factor in everything. I remember I was doing just sort of an observational, th- trying to think up experiments that some of my students could do and looking at the temperature of the snake versus how fast they would digest their, their meal. Their mouseling. Their mouse. Their mouse. And... <laughs> I was thinking, okay, well, if you heat them up, it's going to go through the digestive tract. You know, everything's going to. And comparing the snakes, I realized, well, these are different species of snakes. So one's a cold snake, one's a warm snake, but they're different species. There's other variables. There's other variables. I can't draw any conclusions. But if I have two of the same species and then I look at, their digestive time in a cold situation versus a warm situation, then I might be able to draw some conclusions. But even there, you've got individual differences yeah. between the snakes. One snake might have a parasite. One might not. What a neat There's genetic uh, experiment idea. Yeah. And that's so, something, I love that. Uh, that's something uh, families could do at home. You know, you have a pet, mm-hmm. and whether it's a snake or it's a dog. Not experimenting on them in the mad scientist, you know, clicking his fingers together and menacing kind of way. But how could you study Rover? Uh, maybe you don't want to study Rover's digestion because that can right. get kind of icky. But you might have to go and scoop his poop anyway. Mm-hmm. But what, what variable could you uh, vary to maybe get a, an idea of Well, look at the different, are... different types of chow, dog chow. Yeah. You know, this is more expensive dog chow. And how does that affect the digestive time? And or the nature of the, yeah, that's sort of a messy experiment, but no, it's still easy to do. Easy to do. Yeah. No, that's fantastic. You know, the, the mass of the stool and so on. Sorry, we're going we're, we're down getting, the wrong <laughs> We're going path. down a messy track, but that was <clears throat> the GI but here. But these are, these are <laughs> things that are easy Easy access type right. experiment. This is what we do. Note, notes from the field. Um, I'll, I'm going to throw a quote at you. Uh, sure. Uh, one from um, one that I really like from um, Spurgeon here. And he says in talking about general revelation, 
Um, he's got this, uh, his sermons, you can actually find these online, PDFs and print them. Uh, this is sermon 3,314. Wow. Um, and it was given on August 8th, 1912. And um, he, this is his first paragraph of his, of his, uh, his exhortation. What I have to say this evening will really be an exposition of the whole psalm. And he's talking about Psalm 19. I have only selected these three verses for the convenience of having a short text. The psalm begins upon a high note. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. And so that's the end of the quote. And then um, Spurgeon continues, Only let the film of unbelief be taken from our eyes, and we shall see that everything in the great temple of nature proclaims the greatness and the glory of God. Only let the naturally deaf ear be unstopped, and there will be heard voices, mysterious yet clearly intelligible, revealing that God is still here working in providence as of old he wrought in creation. And I just think of that simple verse, the heavens declare the glory of God. Mm-hmm. You know, it, so often um, in talking about invisible attributes, worthy to be worshipped is one of those invisible attributes. And what mm-hmm. do we often find ourselves doing when we see something remarkable like Comet Neowise? We find ourselves wor- worshiping. And the non-believer is worshiping too, not the Lord for making but, it. Yeah, but for the, they wind up worshiping the created rather than the creator. Yeah, exactly. worshiping nature. Yeah. Right. They, just, they, they, they may amazing? be just as awestruck, but they draw the wrong conclusion that nature cobbled itself out of nothing and then built this amazing uh, universe out of nothing. Yeah. The nothing becomes a point singularity and then explodes 13.78 billion years ago. And here we are, you know, marveling at all of it. It does evoke awe. Where, where are you going to place that? So you're right on the money. But the, the one thing that we need general revelation to do for us is draw us, like you said, to worship. But what often happens in this Christian curriculum mindset is we're going to do science now. We're going to do um, history now. And we, we're looking at it. We're looking at the curriculum as this checklist, checkbox, 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 and we are not uh, allowing it to usher us into uh, the glory of God and, and seeing his handiwork, whether we're dissecting a crayfish or a, a fetal pig or, or whatever, we get so bogged down into the details of what we're supposed to learn, right? That we are not um, thinking about God's handiwork. And we need to do that. We really need to do that. Curriculum can blind us because we're dutiful or dutiful parents, dutiful student, or we're not dutiful and we just go, ick. Uh, study. I have to study. I don't want to learn. I want to go play ball. I want to do whatever I want to do. And my parents are making me learn this junk rather than are are we taken up into the glories of creation, whether it's geology or physics or chemistry. Now, our over-enthusiasm can sometimes be off-putting to the kids, right? Because 
the, the parents are trying to make it exciting and we're smothering the kids with our, our excitement and they're not seeing it right. yet. Right. So we have to be really careful at how we're to bring them into um, loving it. Uh, one just case in point, just a real memorable event that happened to me when I was in grad school in uh, uh, entomology. And I was taking an insect identification class, graduate level. And I came into lab and we were that lab period. We were studying a lot of hymenoptera. We were, but it was micro hymenoptera. They were really tiny wasps, mostly parasitoid wasps that lay their eggs into other invertebrates. Um, and these, and I was like, oh boy, this is going to be, you know, sarcastically saying to myself, this is going to be real exciting looking at things that are the size of a flake of dandruff, you know, uh, mounted yeah. on the, a point, you know, on a pin. And I mean, these were gnat-sized wasps. Wow. And so I, I had pretty low expectations. And I put it under the microscope and focused in on it. And I was blown away. I, I saw this tiny wasp, but I barely could see any detail with the naked eye. And then I, it was now magnified and it was metallic purple green. Ooh. It was beautiful, sh iridescent metallic green, purple green. And it had, you know, four wings, compound eyes, six legs, antennae. It made the best jet fighter, you know, state of the art <laughs> jet fighter look like a piece of junk. I mean, <laughs> that's how amazing this wasp looked. And yet, and it was dead, of course, because I was, you know, it was a pinned insect. But I thought I was overwhelmed. So I'm in a, a secular university in grad school, and I was overwhelmed with awe and uh, overwhelmed with a, a sense that I needed to worship. And I was just about ready to get on my knees right there at the lab bench. <laughs> yeah. I was overwhelmed. Oh, man. And I realized, well, that'll make a scene. You know, someone will come <laughs> over. What, what are you doing? Are you okay? You know, did you get lunch or uh, can I get you a glass of water? So I didn't kneel, but I felt like kneeling because here was something we can't sculpt that small, you know. Absolutely. We can, we don't we have can those make fine big motor jets skills. that are pretty impressive, but to work at that detail. Um, and it's not just a sculpture uh, that was impressive because just the dead insect was impressive enough. At an earlier time, this thing was flying around. This thing operated. It had a nervous system. It had a circulatory system. It had a muscular system, skeletal system. It had an endocrine system. It had you know, all of this, you know. Yeah. Take off and land. And, did I and say nervous sting. system? Yeah. It, well, it lay, it could lay, lay, lay eggs. No stinger. No stinger. It couldn't okay. sting you. Yeah. Because it was a parasitoid. But that's right. It was just, oh. And, that, and I thought, we need to have, whether it's a common thing or a non, you know, a common thing or a rare thing, we, we need to be in awe. And I think it takes sort of a, it takes the parent 
to some degree, we need, that's why it's co-ops are kind of nice because you can get somebody excited about a subject yep. that maybe the parent isn't. Right. And you want, you want that excitement to be contagious. That's exactly right. So, and like I said before, there's sometimes too much enthusiasm can quench, can quash, right? Can squash yeah. the enthusiasm because uh, this this person is way too over the top. Yeah, uh, and it, you know, Bill Nye, the science guy, you right. know, just um, pure energy, just pure energy, and it's like, well, maybe that works with some, but not everybody. So you really have to know your student, and really, we're so eager to get through the curriculum. But what's more important than getting through the curriculum is conveying that sense of, especially in the sciences where we're looking at God's handiwork, whether in the nature of chemistry, you know, why do chemicals react with each other? Well, God made physical laws, chemical laws. This is the way God usually does things. And we're studying God's attributes. Yeah. We're, we don't want to divorce those things from God. And we want to be students of our children. They're, they're, we're reading them also. And I would say, as you do your homeschooling, uh, or as you just live, live life in this lifestyle of engaging in creation, taking dominion in all things, um, keep a keen eye to what your child's interests are and mm -hmm. look for opportunities for them to have that growth encouraged by other uh, faithful adults in your community. Um, one thing that I thought of as you were giving that description of the parasitoid wasp is also that different people are going to engage and be in awe uh, at different things. One of the things mm -hmm. uh, that took me a little while to realize, my oldest uh, son, who I would say he's not as interested in doing outdoorsy quote unquote things, but he absolutely loves a kind of a windy stormy day. And he just flies on that bike. And then I'll, I've caught him multiple times just perched up on the roof. Mm -hmm. He loves being perched up on the roof. He just heads up there out mm -hmm. the upstairs bathroom and sits on the roof and just enjoys it. Yeah. And so, and I think he's having a similar experience uh, yeah, to that, that parasitoid wasp. Yeah, exactly. Because every, and some people are in awe, heavens declare God's handiwork. I look at living things. And to me, that declares the glory all of these things declare the glory of god but it's going to be more you see them the clearest yeah i see i see the things. glory of god in in the biological realm yeah i i like the stars you know it's not like i go you know yeah. but i'm not that's my, not your niche that's not my niche right i i went out and i saw the comet I'm going blank all of a oh, sudden. Oh, Neowise. Neowise yeah. comment. Kind and that was really name. neat. But that's not something that just pulls me into a state of enthusiasm. Right. I you're, like, I appreciate it. You're dreaming about parasitoid wasps. You're not <laughs> dreaming about comets. I would have right. dreams during, during spring migration for birding. And it's I the same. I would have dreams about birds. Okay. And, and that's and my I, br I bring niche. kids, you know, we have people over and I bring kids and have them look in my microscope and look at insects. And I realize that they think it's cool, but they don't necessarily, and I don't expect them to think it is, think it is cool as I do. Right. They may be looking at it and going, neat, the way I looked at Neowise and go, neat, but not, you know, drooling, going, whoa, uh, this is amazing. Yeah. So just always be aware that 
our kids aren't cut out of the same God shuffles the deck. Yeah. Know? And he he makes our kids different than us. That's right. And there's so much in his general revelation that there's plenty of opportunity for different tastes to still fully mm. appreciate and be in awe. Yeah. And that's it's great that God made us all different. Where would we oh. be if we all liked and wanted to do the same thing? It would be terribly it boring. It would be terrible. You know, who would want to- We'd be arguing actually yeah. probably all the time. Well, that's and look not at the competition. a purple parasitoid wasp. That's a- off blue parasitoid wasp. Well, and the way God made the world is that everybody just falls into different niches, whether yeah. it's occupational niches, interest niches. Um, and if if we all like the same thing, can you imagine how awful the competition would be Ugh. in terms of, well, no, I, I want to study that. No, I want well, We all want to, all 7 billion <laughs> people want to study the same thing. <laughs> No, no, no. God yeah. is, God is good. Diverse, diverse diversity in, in, in human personality, how mm -hmm. he crafted each soul yes. and then manifested the, from the DNA um, onwards. Yeah. We're, we're blessed. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Gordon. Thank you, Will. All right. Thanks everyone for joining us on Notes from the Field. Get out there and explore and we'll see you next time.